Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. We're so glad that you are joining us today. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? Not much. Thanks again for uh, letting me into your home to record today. Bailey is out of town this week, so it's just Scott and I again. And apparently the nice weather uh, was uh, more desirable to the several guests that we invited. They all had other plans this week, which I can't say I blame them. Uh, nonetheless, it's been a, you know, a slightly less, like, roller coaster of a week. Yeah. Less frenetic. Yes. Yes. Um, but uh, certainly no less important. So today we're going to talk about, a, a, you know, a few of the issues dealing with Oklahoma politics and government, as we are wont to do on this show. Uh, Scott, first of all, how are you? I'm well, man. I'm enjoying this weather. The weather the last couple of days has been just remarkable. It's been wonderful. Uh, Going to get some storms tonight, it looks like, or some, some rain over the next couple of days, which will be good. We still need some more uh, soaking rain here in central Oklahoma. So. We do. I uh, I put out some grass seed today uh-huh. and did a little raking of thatch. So nice. I'm hoping that we get rain. Otherwise, the last time we were supposed to get rain, we didn't. It just yep. like spit on my yard and that was it. Yep. yep. Made my car very dirty. Yep, yep. Uh, hopefully, we'll get some 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 decent rain this week. I am uh, hoping the nice weather continues. I haven't looked at the weather for next weekend, but uh, I have some power washing on the agenda for next weekend. Uh, do so. you did you buy a power washer or do you rent one? Uh, so I own a power washer. It is not a like big like industrial like gas power washer. Right. I bought one that was on sale on Amazon for like very low money it's it's an electric it's it's pretty low power but it does what i needed to do okay how many psi uh like 1500 okay that's so this week there was a sale on amazon on power washers that are electric about 1500 psi yeah and i almost bought one i was like i think scott has one i could borrow his i also am curious which one he has (laughs) so i can send it to you uh it was on it was on sale on amazon it's a Here's the deal. If you're if you're like me and you bust it out, you know, twice a year mm-hmm. for like your front porch, you know, deck if you have one, like that kind of thing, it's fine. If you are someone who needs a like power washer like on the regular, this is not one that I would recommend. Right. I, I, uh, my understanding is that a good power washer, like you're looking at the twenty five hundred to three thousand psi. Yeah. However, that's also dangerous territory. Right. That'll like puncture your skin yes yes if you if you yes yes like this is you know i will basically what i'll do is i've got some uh i've got some like uh, biodegradable like all natural like wood like cleaner i will take that and put it in a bucket i'll scrub my deck down like i'll scrub it with like a hard bristle brush uh, and then i'll power wash it and then that'll be good for another year do you restain afterwards you know i don't only because i don't want to that's that's fair that's fair i've thought i've i've thought about doing it uh you certainly can make a case uh for uh for restaining and sealing your your deck every year um it's a lot of work it's it's a lot of work and it's not work that i particularly enjoy so that's fair i don't that's like uh like i'm I'm building a piece of furniture for my father-in-law right now and I'm at the sanding and staining. I've stained it once. You got to mm-hmm. sand it, restain it, and it's just not exciting, right? I got to get a good podcast in uh, to listen to. Uh, maybe some, uh, maybe some of our listeners are doing work around their house right now while they're listening to us talk about doing work around the house. That's uh, a little bit meta, <laughs> or something. <clears throat> there, I can also hear the voice of some of our other listeners right now just looking at their at their radios and saying get on with it guys enough with the power washing i feel like melanie's one of those people who's like all right <laughs> move on all right start, start start listening at 15 minutes and 32 seconds when they start talking that's right our other listener besides her is uh is thoroughly entertained all right well scott let's uh let's start by talking about the loft meeting this week right? that's the legislative oversight of fiscal transparency that's roughly what it stands for so it's like a essentially it's a state agency right it's a department um but they it's staffed by legislators 
And this week, they heard from the Oklahoma Tourism and Recreation Department, uh, from their director, about um, a report that had, I think, come out the same week about uh, the Tourism Department spending like $16 million on renovations and newly and opening new restaurants at all the state parks. But all of this money went to one company. It went to Swadley's Barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. So it was $13 million. Uh, oh, 13. Excuse sorry, me. $13 million. And um, they, they, they paid Swadley's to, to operate Swadley's Foggy, Foggy Bottom Kitchen Restaurants in Oklahoma State Parks. Um, that $13 million includes $2.1 million to cover the restaurant's operating losses for 2021. So the restaurants lost $2.1 million, and they gave it to them. They got the money anyway. Yeah. So it, let's maybe let's back up right quick to like just refresh. How did we get here? Yeah, how do we get here? Right. I mean, we all know. Well, about two years ago, there was a pandemic that happened, right? It's still happening. <laughs> I guess about two years ago, the pandemic started. And during those two years, there's been a lot of work going on to renovate our state parks, which is good. A lot of folks are going outside. Tourism's a big deal. This is work that needed to be done. But, as we all know, the restaurant industry has not fared well over the last couple of years, right? It is very difficult to open new restaurants in the midst of a pandemic, especially at state parks that people may not know have been renovated, right? They were in disrepair. And so they opened several state parks or several restaurants in several state parks. I forget how many, four or five or six, right? And they they didn't even brand it as Swadley's Barbecue. They branded him as Foggy Bottom. So like, I think there's a, you're missing out on some brand identity there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I don't know about you. I, I, I assume some people go to state parks for like, catered meals or eat at the restaurant there but that is not why i have ever gone to a state park i literally don't know a single person who has ever gone to a state park to go to the restaurant no i mean like maybe there's like a really famous one i mean like there are people okay there are people there's central park in new york which is not a state park it's a city park (laughs) um but like there are some there are some fantastic restaurants and around central park so people go to those, but I don't feel like that's the same. <laughs> it's saying, right. like, I'm going to go to Beaver's Bend to eat at Swadley's Foggy Bottom. No, I go to state parks frequently. I was at Red Rock, uh, Red Rock Canyon yes, State Park. Yes, I saw that with the kids last weekend. Yeah, yeah, like a week ago for my birthday. We went for a hike. We did not go in any building, right? I don't know that they have a restaurant. I would assume they do, but we brought our own food. Like, that's why you go. It's a picnic. But I can see, I've been to some state parks. They have a nice lodge. Maybe you're bringing some people there to have a, a catered meal. That can make sense, right? If you're sure. hosting an event there. Um, but Medicine Park has some nice places. Yeah, yeah, sure. But again, I feel like this is a small niche of like restaurants that, Agree. that probably shouldn't be spending a lot on like fancy meals because they're probably not driving that kind of clientele. Yeah. And yet, we gave them $13 million dollars and, and my understanding, Scott, is that all the money went to Swadley's. Yes. So, and like, a, like th- there was no competitive bidding process. Well, so Jerry Winchester, Jerry Winchester says that uh, that twenty five possible operators were approached for the contract, and Swadley's was the only one willing to pursue it. Well, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So this is what Winchester, Jerry Winchester. He's the He's the uh, uh, the uh, executive director for the uh, state uh, Oklahoma Oklahoma Department of Tourism and Recreation. Um, um, he, uh, like many of the governor's appointees, he is not a career civil servant. He's a former oil and gas executive that uh, Governor <laughs> Stitt uh, uh, hired to lead the agency in 2019. And like many of Governor Stitt's uh, appointees, has found himself in legal trouble shortly after taking the job. Uh-huh. But, um, <laughs> uh-huh. but but he said right that like. The problem was it was hard to find other companies who were willing to operate restaurants in such remote locations, which uh, should be a red flag about how successful they might be. Right. But uh, Representative Martinez, Ryan Martinez, who's a Republican of Edmond, um, and this is a quote. By the way, uh, Nondoc has a fantastic article about this. So as per usual, if you are looking for 
uh, great local journalism covering everything at the Capitol and, uh, and a lot of things going around our fair state. Uh, be sure to check out the folks at Nondoc. They do a great job. Uh, Nondoc has a quote from Representative Martinez that says, uh, quote, you're telling me this offer was made to all kinds of restaurants and vendors saying, hey, open this operation. It doesn't matter how you perform, how much food you sell, you're going to have your losses covered and people weren't lining up to take that deal. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, that's, I mean, especially because you, like you mentioned, so the last couple of years have not been great for restaurants, right? Like the pandemic has not been good to the restaurant industry. And you're saying like, here's a deal where you're going to get paid whether you sell food or not. And like people weren't going to take it. I mean, that does seem fishy. It does. And, you know, as they like had this discussion during the loft meeting, um, somebody, I think it was Martinez, um, said criminal investigations exceed Loft's authority. If we were to discover potential criminal activity, our internal procedures would require that we inform the proper authorities. Dun dun dun. Yeah. So that's that's Jackson, who's the director of uh, the director uh, Mike Jackson, who's the director of Loft, of in, Loft. Res- okay. in response to so uh, Representative Martinez saying, "Hey, did somebody break the law here?" And Director Jackson says, "Look." Uh, it's not our job to determine if somebody broke the law. And if we found something that looks like somebody broke the law, we would tell law enforcement and then law enforcement would take over from there. Um, as it happens, shortly after that, the OSBI announced that they're opening a criminal investigation. Uh, they're opening a, a criminal investigation uh, into uh, uh, the state park expenditures that were highlighted um, in the loft report. Uh, that's just this investigation will be taking place at the request of uh, District Attorney David Prater. Because um, he's the DA for the district yes. where it's being filed, right? Yes. So I think, I mean, what's interesting here is that, you know, like uh, Jerry Winchester, I don't know him, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but, you know, the director of, of the tourism department was like, hey, people don't have any perspective on what this used to look like. Like, we spent a lot of money, yes, but you don't know how bad it was, which is true, but, I, Scott, I think my gut says, or I don't know if it says, it wonders if maybe they overshot, right? Like they, they didn't really do a customer analysis for what customers of the state parks are looking for. Maybe they did, but it just seems like the amount of money they spent and what they were delivering exceeds what the demand is. Yeah, and it's, it's just, you know, and even going beyond the Foggy Bottom deal, there's the whole... The, the loft, the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency looked at this um, department's budget and really had um, serious questions about all of their accounting. So, um, you know, they, they estimated their maintenance funding by taking 4% of the replacement value of all park assets, which apparently is, like, pretty high on the, like, high end maybe even above what would be a standard like accounting practice. Mm. And uh, Mr. Winchester defended that by saying, well, that's what we did when I was at Chesapeake, so I thought that was okay. <laughs> um, I mean, he's been in, like, literally, he's like, he was uh, executive at seven, he was at 77 Energy and Chesapeake Oil Field Services, and he said that was the number we used annually as a percentage of our assets, and he's talking about drilling rigs or fracking equipment. Um, but, like, that's not the same. Well, right? and it didn't work out right particularly well. Right. For those companies. Right. Um, and, and then they also, just the way they have assigned value to their assets. So like boat ramps, right? Every boat ramp was valued at $40,000, $40,650, whether it's a large boat ramp or a small boat ramp, right? The lodges at Quartz Mountain and Roman Nose were both valued at $19.5 million, even though the Quartz Mountain Lodge has 120 rooms and the Roman Nose Lodge has 22 rooms. They were <laughs> both valued at $19.45 million. And so... It's just a very, uh, yeah. Um, so, like, the total amount might be accurate, but they did some, like, corner cutting on the way to get there. That's, that's or at least questionable. I'm not an accountant, but the people that are accountants that looked at this seemed to have a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in, including uh, the state legislatures, whose whose job it is to, to oversee all of this. So, uh We'll see what happens yeah. moving forward at the Oklahoma uh, Tourism and Recreation Department. Well, it has been interesting, Scott, I think, too, because um, Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell, who we've had on the show a couple of times, I think, 
you know, he, part of the lieutenant governor's job really is to promote Oklahoma tourism. I mean, he's been very active in this. Yes. Um, and when we first had the loft meeting, I don't think he was there. You didn't really hear his name mentioned, but he was at um, this meeting the other day that was like a tourism department meeting, basically. Um, and some, uh, you know, he said he wants to promote renovations to state parks, which he thinks will be a boost to the local economy. And again, having frequented our state parks uh, myself, I can say that, yes, the conditions definitely needed to have some uh, renewal, right? Like they sure. were dilapidated. The cabins were not what they used to be. Um, and even like, I probably go to Roma knows the most because it's pretty close to Oklahoma City um, there and like Lake Eufaula State Park. But even at Roman knows over the last, I don't know, six years, like that I've gone camping out there a few times, like I've noticed like a decline in the conditions out there, which is sad because it is a pretty cool park. Yeah, that one has like park. a bunch of cool stuff there. Uh, and so, so great trails out there. There are. And like, you know, they had the meeting at Robert's Cave, which is down in the southeast part of the state and probably my favorite state park of the ones Robert's, I've been to. Robert's Cave is very cool. But the trail is terribly marked. Like there are arrows pointing conflicting directions on the same trail. And it was the last time I was there was like was probably in 2015 um, or late. Yeah, 2016. And it was really hard to find your way to the cave. And I was like, I've been here before, and I'm sure it's not this way, but this little orange arrow, and I, like, touched it, and it, like, would spin around on its tack. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is like a cartoon arrow, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> so um, this is very interesting now that it's in the hands of OSBI, right? And I think it's interesting that they said, well, we can't investigate ourselves. If we found anything, we'd kick it over to law enforcement, and then... Literally, like, two hours later, OSBI is like, well, by the way. <laughs> As it turns out, yeah, uh, we will, yes. Investigating. Yes. We'll see. Um, I, you know, we'll see if this, I hope not, right? Like, I'm just, Scott, I'll be honest, I'm sick of talking about instances of Oklahoma taxpayer money being misspent. Right. Well, I mean, like, another great example, we don't have to get a ton into this, but, like, another great example is the Pandemic Center, right? Like, moving the state health lab to Stillwater and the creation of this uh, Oklahoma, you know, Center for Pandemic Excellence, right? Right. We've spent, like, $30 million on this thing, um, and so far they don't appear to be doing anything. You know how many, you know how many uh, variant tests the Oklahoma Center for Pandemic oh, yeah. Excellence has conducted? Less than 10 or something, right? Zero. Yeah. <laughs> Zero. You know who is the last in the country for de- testing for variants of Omicron? The Oklahoma Center for Pandemic Excellence, yeah. right? Like They've been outsourcing everything. Right. Um, they're paying all kinds of money to like management companies and executives. I mean, it just like, it just reeks of incompetence at best and grift at worst, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, we give the governor a hard time on the show um, mostly because I think he's terrible at his job, but like it, it, you don't want to see like corruption, right? Like <laughs> you don't want to see corruption. And I think every, as I've said before, n- n- nobody wants to pay any more taxes than they have to, but they also want to know they're getting a return on their investment. I'm saying. And I don't have a heart, I don't, you know, I don't have any problem paying my state taxes if I felt like it's being used. For the good of our state and not just the good of a few people or a few corporations. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, you're talking about about taxes. You know, one of the things we have on our list to talk about today, we we could segue right here. Yeah. Uh, We we discussed earlier this year, uh, you asked me, I think, are they going to cut taxes? And I was like, dude, come on. Of course, they're going to cut taxes. It's an election year. <laughs> do you know? Do you know uh, how how what dollar amount uh, legislators in the House have proposed in tax cuts? I'm going to guess it's in the neighborhood of six hundred million. Five hundred million. Hey. So the the House has proposed five hundred million in uh, tax cuts. We've got we've got uh, let's see here. First, we've got a House Bill thirty three forty nine by Speaker McCall. Is a two-year like kind of two-year kind of experiment to see what happens if you uh, eliminate the uh, state sales tax on groceries. House Bill thirty-three fifty, also by McCall, is a permanent tax cut bill. It's a quarter-point reduction in income tax taxes across all tax brackets. That's two hundred twenty-five million. 
Uh, we've also got, uh, let's see here, uh, House Joint Resolution 1047 by Representative Manger. Uh, this is a proposed constitutional amendment that would freeze valuations for property tax purposes on households headed by those 65 and older. So their, their property tax, their property could still appreciate, but the, uh, the value, value for tax purposes would be, would be frozen. Um, my father-in-law would appreciate that for sure. I mean, I think everybody over 65 would probably appreciate that. Um, um, but, uh, I mean, that's, that's 500 million, uh, in tax cut bills. Now, you know, I, I don't know if any of those are going to go anywhere. Um, uh, Senator Roger Thompson, uh, who is, who is uh, chair of appropriations on the Senate side, uh, as, as well as, uh, uh, representative, uh, Wallace. Wallace. I was starting to say Watson, and I was like, it's not Watson, it's Wallace. Yeah. Uh, Representative Wallace, who's the uh, chair on the House side, neither of them seem to have much of an appetite for the tax cuts, actually. They gave an interview to the Tulsa World this week in which they said, let's, you know, we've, we've done some tax cuts, we've done some good work, we know we got a big surplus this year, but we also know a lot of that's one-time funds. Um, let's maybe kind of see how everything shakes out in the next couple of years. Um and uh, if the economy keeps, you know, doing well, we can take a look at tax cuts again here in a couple of years. Um, well, I, I do think that, you know, as much as as much as many of the members I think want to cut taxes, I refuse to use the term tax relief. Um, as as much as many of the members want to cut taxes, I do think, particularly in the senior ranks, uh, there are some memories of a billion dollar shortfall a couple of years ago. Um, and the massive lift that was required to raise taxes on oil and gas, tobacco. Um, well, so that's the problem, right? Is that it's easy to cut taxes and really hard to raise them back. And, and there's a big difference here, right? These are, these are tax reductions that would be in place in perpetuity. These are not like a, well, or a two years the, or whatever, well, but so it's the, not like a one-time yeah, here's you know everyone gets a hundred bucks, but this is like, like reducing the tax rate, for a period of time, it tends you know if you cut it once, it tends to be made permanent, um, and then it is exceptionally difficult to get it back in there, and that means that what's happened in the past is that we have a reduction in future income, right? Like, it's cutting off our nose to spite our face. Right. Financially speaking, well, and, you know they're they're debating this. They're debating this. It just it blows my mind. Um, it it blows my mind that we still have to have this discussion, right? So, uh, thirty three fifty, which is one of McCall's bills. This is the quarter point reduction in, in all tax brackets. Um, uh, Jeff Boatman, who's a Republican out of Tulsa, he's the one carrying the bill in the House. Um, he he says doesn't matter. That, that it'll pay for itself, right? Like, like that's what the that's what the conservative line is on tax cuts. They always pay for themselves. He said the lost revenue will quickly be made up. And he's, do you know what his proof did he, was? Did he say how? Yeah, his his proof was. He said, look, look at 1997 compared to 2020. The state of Oklahoma collected about twice as much income and uh, as much revenue and in income tax in 2020 as it did in 1997, and taxes are much, much lower now than they were in 1997. So, ergo, tax cuts pay for themselves. That's not how it works. <laughs> That's not how it works at all. <laughs> we, that, oh. Like, where do you, like, where do you start? Can, not talking about inflation, not talking about changes in population. Right. Not talking, I mean, like. Right. <laughs> also, in 1997, a gallon of gas was ninety eight cents. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been less than that actually. It was. I mean, there was a point that hit like eighty seven cents yeah. down in Central Texas. Like I was in high school, driving, started driving about in ninety seven, and like gas was a big deal. That was my primary yeah. expense, right? The lowest I ever, the lowest I ever paid for a gallon of gas was eighty nine cents. Mm-hmm. This would have been probably junior year of high school. So around the same time. Yeah, I mean. Oh, a little and bit later than for you. It was about, about 2000, 99 maybe. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and I remember because I drove a nineteen, I drove a nineteen ninety four Mazda B three thousand. Yeah. And I want to say, I want to say it had a fifteen gallon 
tank, mm -hmm. and I could fill up my truck for $13. Yeah, that's right. That's funny. My dad drove a Mazda B3000 around the same time. <laughs> was that your first car? It was. It was. It was a great little truck, man. It was good. What color was yours? Uh, Hunter Green. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, dad's, my dad's Mazda was white, but he later had a Ford Ranger that was that Hunter Green. Yeah. And as, as listeners may not know, the Ford Ranger and the Mazda B3000 same are truck. the same truck. In fact, if you look at the engine block inside the Mazda, it says R-N-G-R for Ranger. That's the <laughs> same, same thing. My, same truck. And um, was, your, was your dad's a, a standard? Yeah. Oh, man. I, That's I, the standard I learned. Yeah. Well, that and a Willys Jeep is how I learned to drive a stick. How did uh, how did did your uh, did your dad teach you how to drive the stick? Uh, a little bit. Like we, so growing up, my uh, one of my buddies' dad and grandpa um, were really into like World War II history, and uh, and so they had some like Willys Jeeps, like the precursor to the Jeep Wrangler, yeah. right? Yeah. And we used to drive those around the pasture when I lived up in Minnesota, uh, and then. But as far as modern vehicles go, with a you know a clutch that worked, um, <laughs> yes, the Mazda was the the test. My dad taught me how to drive a standard in that Mazda truck, and uh, um, I had already done like driver's ed and whatnot. So like I, I yeah. like was fine in terms of driving, um, but I was about to turn sixteen, and that was going to be my car, so I uh, needed to be able to drive the stick and. Uh, <laughs> We were at the parking lot at Hafer Park, yeah, uh, up in uh, in Edmond, and went around the parking lot a few times. And then my dad was just like, "All right, drive us home." Yeah, so we did. That's how you learn. Well, and then we pulled up to the intersection at Fifteenth uh, and Bryant, uh, headed south on Bryant. It's a little bit, a little bit of a hill, not yeah. too steep, a little bit of a hill. And uh, car pulled up behind us. Yeah, panic. Oh yeah, and, and I told my dad, "Like, <laughs> what happens if I roll back?" And my dad didn't even look at me. He was like, "That'd be bad." Yeah. Probably shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I definitely, I don't think probably gave it a little bit more gas than yeah. it needed, but I for Guess sure I'll peel out. That's it. <laughs> I for sure wasn't gonna roll backwards. Yep, hundred uh, percent. I, uh, my dad and I had a few test drives around Austin, and then probably my senior year of high school, I was gonna go visit my grandma. It was about a four-hour drive from Austin to East Texas. Sure. And my first car was a nineteen eighty-four Pontiac Bonneville. Nice. That I got from my grandparents. Sure. Um, and had, when I got it, it had 178,000 miles on it. Still blue, cold AC, still worked, but it had that sure. Chevy small block V8, the 305. Mm -hmm. And I got 12 miles to the gallon everywhere. City, <laughs> highway, didn't matter. 12 miles to the gallon. Um, but I didn't think it would make the trip to my grandma's house and back where I was, it broke down a lot. Sure. <laughs> a lot of parking lot repairs. So my dad let me take his Mazda truck. And my, my girlfriend and I drove up there, and I was like, sure, I've barely driven on a parking lot. Why shouldn't I go on a four-hour, you know, 200-mile drive? I mean, mostly highway, it was fine, but... And you uh, did great, didn't you? I mean, we made it back. The clutch still worked. So, yeah, <laughs> it worked out. Well, all that to say, the point of that conversation is <laughs> that you can't compare 1997 and 220 and just be like, no, 2020, like, look. A few things look, have changed. In, income tax rates were lower in 97, and the state collected more money in 2020. See? It it works. Like I just it blows my like we can you can have a legitimate debate about whether or not you should cut taxes for the economy and like whether it's good policy. But like I just wish we could have that debate honestly instead of continuing with this charade of like tax cuts pay for themselves. Like it doesn't work. It's it's never worked. It doesn't work at the federal level. It doesn't work at the state level. That doesn't mean that like you can have infinitely high tax rates with no economic repercussions. That's not what I'm saying. But you also can't have infinitely low tax rates. With no economic repercussions. Like, right. there's a balance that has to be struck, and that balance depends on a lot of factors, not the least of which is what's happening in the macro economy at any given point in time. And, like, if we're going to have a discussion about whether or not we should cut taxes or raise taxes, which, by the way, should always be part of the discussion, too. Like, what the tax rate should be is not, like, the default is not that it should always be lower, right? Like, right. there are times when the tax rate should be higher than what it is. I just wish that we could have... Like an the honest actual discussion. honest conversation. Because, I, I, well, sometimes it makes me mad because it feels like politicians undermine, not undermine, but like don't, they pander to voters, right? They don't yes. believe that voters are smart, that, that voters would understand yes. nuance. I'm like, it's not nuanced. 
It's like, hey, listen, uh, the world costs more now than it did in 1997. We need more money for it now than we did in 1997. Um, and uh, that's not hard to understand. Also, we have a lot more people. We have more people, right? <laughs> right? Like we have a lot more people than and we did you, in 1997. And OK Policy does a good job of framing this, these conversations in terms right. of like revenue per person, right? Or cost, like how much we spend per person. Um, and you have to adjust for inflation. Right. Right? right, like I'm saying, things cost more. Go to the gas pump today. You might have noticed it's right. more than eighty-seven cents. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, that's a big deal. You know, I I don't know how to segue from this, but I'm going to jump um, to another topic, and that is education. I guess I'm thinking about voters here. That's my segue. Speaking of voters, five thirty-eight. <laughs> uh, um, politics, which I think many listeners, both of our listeners may know that you and I are big fans. Aficionados. Of, aficionados of the 538 uh, in general, but also their politics podcast. Um, it's honestly one of the like three podcasts I listen to every week um, or try to. And this last week, uh, their episode that came out, I think on April 1st, is about how education became today's wedge issue. And they had two political scientists, um, Sunshine Hillegas, who's from Duke, I think, and Patrick Egan, who's from NYU. Um, so uh, two very different states and kind of very different um, academic experiences. And they talked about just wedge issues in general, but specifically how, how the parties, the Republican Party and Democratic Party, are divided between each other and within themselves, right? Like where the lines are about this uh, about this issue of education. They also talk about immigration and some other things. And I couldn't help think about it um, without thinking about Oklahoma, right? So, so Scott, certainly for the gubernatorial election, right, we've got, I mean, we've got Governor Stitt, um, who has been in, in many ways openly hostile towards public schools, right? He's not, that's, that's putting... I guess that's not putting it generously. That's probably a fit, but openly hostile is fair. <laughs> I mean, not all the time, like, but except for Tulsa Public Schools. Like, he had a full-on spat with them for a while, right? Like, it was, like, pretty overt. Well, because they believe in COVID, like, <laughs> that it's real. Right. And that it affects children. Right. So you have... And you can take precautions to prevent it. You have Governor Stitt and how he's tried to, in some ways, overreach his authority, but, like, mandating things to schools rather than leaving it up to locally elected school boards and the administrators there. And then the, the flip side of that is, you know, his likely opponent from the Democratic Party is Joy Hoffmeister, who is the current state school superintendent, right? Um, we've seen the, uh, the previous teacher of the year for the state, like recently entered, um, uh, filed to run for office, um, so you start seeing like education again come up even in our state. That's my point, right? Is that we know it's a wedge issue. We see it every day in the news. Um, and so I'm, I'm bringing this up, one, so we can talk about it, and two, so that listeners will go listen after, after they finish this episode, go listen to the 538 episode, which I will link to in the show notes. It's also on YouTube if you want to watch a podcast. We don't do that anymore because no one ever watched them. But um, <laughs> we didn't. Even, we did. Even our two listeners didn't watch. That's right. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe we'll do that again someday. But anyway, you should definitely listen to the Five Thirty Eight Politics podcast about education as a wedge issue. But Scott, uh, I guess my question to you is: Do you do you think that education is truly a wedge issue in Oklahoma politics? If by I mean, someone, I'm going to do like a Bill Clinton here. It depends on what the meaning of is is, right? Like, it, it depends on what you mean by education, right? Uh -huh. I think that if, I think that education has become a proxy for so-called parental rights. Um, and, and I think because of that, it becomes a wedge issue, right? Uh -huh. um, what, when people are talking about education now, I think what they're often meaning, particularly on, on the right is that if I am a parent, that means that I know what is best for my child, and that means that I should be in charge of deciding what my child is or is not exposed to at school, what they do and don't learn about at school, what what 
is and is not appropriate for a child of my age, uh, or a child of, of, of my, of my child's age or gender or belief system or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's, that's what the, the wedge issue has become. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to like, I, I don't think that whether charter schools versus public schools versus parochial schools, I don't, I don't think that that's a wedge issue here, right? I mean, public public schools seem to have pretty strong support in Oklahoma. I mean, I mean, even if you just look at the recent debate in the Senate about the voucher bill, like the fact that the voucher bill couldn't get out of the Senate despite being supported by the pro tem and the governor. Right, but think about how close that vote was and how divisive that issue is. Sure, sure. It's not I mean, like everyone's aligned on one side or the other. I mean, so so... So maybe, but when I think about the fight in education right now, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the school board races that you're seeing in Edmond or Broken Arrow or Norman or whatever. I'm thinking about, you know, the the straw man argument of critical race theory. I'm thinking about the straw man argument of, you know, uh, gender, you know, gender roles, you know, being discussed or taught or whatever you want to, whatever framing you, you want to use. Um, but but that's all education. That's what I'm saying. Like, well, if, then yes, if, education's a wedge issue. <laughs> I mean, if a, if a wedge issue right is like an issue that a candidate uh, or a party uses in hopes of like attracting or alienating voters, right, um, or supporters, right? sure. Then like a hundred percent, I think it's like the you, it is the quintessential wedge issue of our time, which is what they're talking about on the podcast. But I mean, it's in Oklahoma in particular right now, COVID is almost passe. Like it's not as big of an issue. No one wants to talk about it anymore. And so that leaves education. Um, that leaves, you would think ethics and corruption is a perennial one, but it doesn't seem to be as much as I think it should be. Um, and then so you get like taxes, education, and maybe abortion, but like with a state that has super majorities uh, control, like, Almost all those candidates, you just kind of know that party well, affiliation aligns you on one side or the other. I am of the belief that because I think there is a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people assume that in the next three months, um, the Supreme Court is going to, if they don't outright overturn Roe, they're mm-hmm. going to effectively overturn Roe. Right. Um, and so I think that there is, uh, I think the part of this, uh, let me back up first. Yes. If we're, Covering all those things under the umbrella of education, then yes, education is a wedge, a wedge issue. I hesitate to do that because I think so many of that's. I think I think CRT is a straw man. I think you know. The well, gym, yes, I think, it I think is, but it doesn't mean that it's not a wedge issue, right? It's not. A, yeah, I mean, I'm like, just. I'm just. I'm. I am reluctant. I feel like by. I guess in in my head, by saying that's like education, I feel like that's almost like buying into the bullshit. Right. Uh, right. Do you right. see what I'm saying? Oh, like by, by uh, yeah, acknowledging right. Like to yeah. me, that's like no. We're not talking about education. We're talking about a made up mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. that you're using to like garner votes. We're right. not actually talking about right. education. Imaginary boogeyman. Right. Well, but 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 I think I think that the reason that there is that imaginary boogeyman is because many people on the left and the right are convinced that Roe will not be the law of the land. Um, in the next three to four months when the Supreme Court um, um, overturns it or effectively overturns it. Um, abortion will be essentially outlawed in places like Oklahoma, which begs the question, you're the platform caucus, you're the Republican Party in Oklahoma, what do you run on right now, right? Like, that's been the defining issue now. That's been the quintessential, right? Like, Governor Stitt says, I'm going to sign every piece of pro-life legislation that comes across my desk. All right, fine, you've done it, abortion's outlawed, now what? Right. What's next? Right. Right. They have to have something. And you can, you know, you, you can only cut taxes so far. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and and in my opinion, you've got several folks that have been pointing out that like, you know, this Oklahoma, you know, Oklahoma turnaround or whatever. The GOP has been in control of Oklahoma for 14 years now. Right. Like sole control uh, for, for 14 years. So are we still going to say that it, like... The problems that, right? right? So you can either talk about why we're still last and everything. <laughs> right. 
Or you can talk about abortion. And if abortion's gone, then you got to talk about something else. Education. Right. I mean, and I think, to me, it's also because it is not, it is not as clearly defined by party affiliation like abortion is, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know of any pro-choice Republicans that are in the Oklahoma legislature. I do know of at least one like pro-life Democrat. So it's not a hundred percent, but it's pretty close to just. I I know several privately pro-choice Republicans. I don't know any publicly pro-choice right. Republicans. <laughs> right, right, and that's what matters here, right? Right. How are the how are the votes coming down? Um, and and so I, but with education, we see people that are willing to stand up to members of their own party that are in positions of authority, and it is, I think, an issue that causes people to fall to one side or the other. And and I think to your point, there's some like sub wedges, right? That like cross cut in different ways, right? So if you're talking about the issue of um, uh, public education funding versus vouchers, that's one thing. You know, CRT is a separate thing, and maybe there's gradients here. But I think um, I think it really is an important wedge issue. So on a related note, uh, I was out of town um, this weekend and drive, went to Texas. Um, and on the way back, we were coming up Highway 69, um, out of East Texas there. So came up through Durant, right? And uh, drove right by the new Choctaw Nation, uh, like near their headquarters in their big uh, casino and resort. I hadn't seen it. I've heard it's awesome. It was huge. My wife was like, what is that? And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's the Choctaw's new casino. It's huge. And uh, so, and that's, I mean, that is the heart of their tribal area, right? And their their headquarters are there. And I'm saying all this to say they have billboards and they had some really, I thought, good, strong messaging on education that said like, and I forget the exact wording, I was driving so I couldn't take a photo, but it was something along the lines of like, we're like, we're making students excited to learn, like or we're, we're building excitement about learning. And I was like, that is framing that everyone is behind, right? I mean, tell me as a, as a parent of public school children myself, I, I can't think of any parent I know who is not excited for their kids to learn and who doesn't want their kids to be excited to learn. Like that is universally um, supported messaging. And I thought, well, that's really good job, Choctaw Nation. I pointed it out. My wife didn't understand what I was gesturing towards, but I thought it's a really good, really good billboard. Beautiful. Um, you know, one other thing, speaking of education, Scott, that we saw this week from the Tulsa World, um, the governor, st- I'm just going to read the headline because it, it, the Tulsa World just said it factually, but it kind of struck me as like so openly factual, it was unusual for a newspaper headline, right? It says, Governor Stitt taps businessman with no college degree for board overseeing <laughs> higher education. That was funny. I was like, oh, they're just calling it out, right? So um, the guy, Dustin Hillary, said um, he's a managing partner of Lawton's Hillary Communications. He said in an email that he attended Cameron University for nearly three years until the growth of his family business put him neck deep in the business for quicker than we anticipated. And so he basically left college early to go to work. Now, you and I both know tons of people who are in similar boats, right? Yeah. Who started college, didn't finish for one sure. reason or another. Um, but I, it's just interesting to me, Scott, how in, how often this kind of thing has come up under Stitt's tenure, right? Well, just appointing people that now there is no, as far as I'm aware, there is no prerequisite that you have a college degree to serve on the the board for higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, but the governor does have a habit of appointing people to positions that don't meet statutorily required, uh, that don't have the statutory statutorily required uh, uh, credentials for that position. Um, which is interesting. Like, does no one tell him? Or does he just ignore that? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because he thinks he's allowed to ignore it? Um, yeah, it's... It, it does. It is, 
appointing people that either don't have legally required credentials or have no experience that's relevant to the position there to which they're being appointed does seem to be a habit. Yes. Well, and it's uh, worth noting, as the Tulsa world did, that the State Ethics Commission, uh, their data indicates that uh, Dustin Hillary, his family, and their company, Hillary Communications, have contributed collectively at least $325,000 to candidates. Most, not all, uh, but most have been Republicans for state office and to political action committees, PACs, since 2015. So in the last eight years, right? Um, yeah. That includes $13,100 to Stitt's re-election campaign for this year, like his current campaign. Um, the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, lists an additional $142,300 in contributions from Dustin Hillary since 2008, um, U.S. Senator James Langford, U.S. Rep. Tom Cole, Stephanie Bice, Mark Wayne Mullen, each received in excess of $20,000 from Hillary. Like, if that's not pay-to-play, I don't know what is. I mean, it seems suspicious. Scott, <laughs> it seems suspicious. You're a doctor. I I don't know your household finances uh, intimately well, but I'm going to guess that you probably don't have an extra $13,000 sitting around to give to a gubernatorial candidate this year. No. Much less... You could not have afforded three hundred and twenty-five thousand uh, dollars. We have we have not donated five hundred thousand dollars to political candidates since two thousand and eight. That's or ever. <laughs> now you know people can you can split hairs and say, well, it's not all him; it's some of his company and his family. But like, that's a lot. It's a of lot money. of money. It's a lot of money. It is insane, and um, it's a nice house. In some ways. I, you know, you got to wonder if he feels upset that all he got was appointed to some board overseeing maybe, higher ed. Maybe. It's not a paid position, right? Right. What's, what does he get out of it? Like, that's why it's one of those things where it's like, okay, but what do you, what would you say you do here? You provide you, guidance? You, you raise an excellent, you raise an excellent point. And it's, you know, I would be, I would question. I'm not questioning that he has something to contribute, but does he have the most to contribute right. out of all possible candidates for that right. position? Right. Um, no, I mean, I think I think reasonable questions, and it's you know, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly, uh, uh, oh, you know, it certainly um, makes you think of uh, nepotism. You know, it's kind of. It's like, I do think of nepotism. Yes, <laughs> you know, certainly, Quite certainly. A bit. Calls to mind nepotism. That's I did not. I had not looked into. Uh, I hadn't read that article. I didn't, I didn't know about his donations until you mentioned that just now. That's interesting. Um, I will say we got to go here in a second. One other thing I wanted to uh, highlight this week, um, as many many folks who listen to the pod, I'm sure are well aware. Uh, former is he technically former at this point? Oklahoma County Commissioner Kevin Calvey, or is he still still current? So uh, is running for DA to replace David Prater. Right. As of this week, he has a Democratic opponent. Um, oh. uh, Vicki Behenna, who's uh, from Edmond, a former federal prosecutor. She was on the team that got the death penalty for uh, Timothy McVeigh. Um, she officially announced uh, this week that uh, she is that she is running for... Actually, maybe she hasn't. She's going to announce this coming week. Her official announcement will be on Wednesday. Um, but she... Uh, 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 has worked as a prosecutor. She's worked in the uh, worked as a defense attorney, um, um, and is running for DA. She, I think, could be a formidable candidate against Kevin Calvey. Yeah, um, and from what I've heard, she's got some good um, interest and energy behind her. So it'll be interesting, right? Like Oklahoma County, uh, I think it's fairly purple, right? So it is certainly possible, but we'll uh, to see how it goes. Um. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, as we wind down, I wanted to kind of just click back and reference the issue of corruption. There's a new effort underway um, to help, um, I think, promote not corruption. 
right? Like to, <laughs> to promote clean, anti-corruption. Yeah, clean candidates. You can go to cleanupoklahoma.org uh, and sign a pledge there, um, and that pledge is basically to um, I think Clean Up Oklahoma is a new like civic action group from what I've you know deduced from their stuff uh, I'm trying to find out who's you know behind it and how we can help out um, but basically it's saying that you know money and influence should not shape our state's capital agenda right it should be the needs of everyday Oklahomans and our children even when politicians are caught red-handed misusing our tax dollars they refuse to accept responsibility and most of the time they get away with it Clean Up Oklahoma has a two-word response to that, no more. So um, so there's that. Um, so I'll be real interested to see how this develops. Um, their logo has a mop, um, which I think is inter- like just a good visual, right, for, All right. for uh, mopping up our state. So if you're interested in, you know, Indian corruption, check out cleanupoklahoma.org. Uh, and I think with that then brings us to the end of the episode. Scott, thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Thanks, man. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Um, it's always good to uh, spend a little time with you in the afternoon. Um, as we say most every week, remember that decisions are made by those who show up. We hope that you will find a way to show up for yourself, for your loved ones, for your neighbors, and for this fair state. Um, as we roll into the end of the legislative session need to be aware that um, you know we're going to be talking more and more about some of these issues and how they uh, affect our state and and what the conversations are about them as we head into the electoral season um, we've got some events that we're talking about planning um, some you know everything from happy hours and meetups to maybe an election night show which we did four years ago so much fun it was a lot of fun so um you know mark your talent calendars for all the appropriate election days and uh we'll see you out there have a good week